We're here with Barbara A. Wilson, a world-renowned clinical neuropsychologist with multiple Lifetime Achievement Awards. She's also the founder of the Oliver Zangwill Center for Neuropsychological Rehabilitation in Ely, Cambridgeshire, England. Dr. Wilson is Kessler Foundation's Distinguished Baird Visiting Professorship Award winner for this year. The prize brings distinguished clinicians, educators, and scientists, such as Dr. Wilson, to Kessler to contribute to the education of our researchers. She'll speak at a special event tomorrow afternoon in West Orange, where her topic will be the past, present, and future of memory rehabilitation. Her colleague, Dr. Jill Weingartner, a lead clinical psychologist at the Zangwill Center, is also joining us today. Dr. Wilson and Dr. Weingartner, thank you both for traveling here to New Jersey, and welcome to the Kessler Foundation podcast series. You're welcome. Dr. Wilson, could you give us a bit of a preview of tomorrow's Baird lecture on the present, past, and future of memory rehabilitation? Yes, well, I'm going to touch on um, things like in the past, memory rehab focused on teaching people lists of words or mnemonics that they were expected to take on board and use themselves um, with the underlying assumption that this would either improve their memory or would give them strategies that they could apply themselves. And there's really no evidence that that's the right way to go. Then I turn to the present, right, and mainly are talking about three main ways of um, helping people remember and learn new information. And that's um, uh, ways to improve learning, such as errorless learning and vanishing cues, uh, compensatory aids, which are really important in helping people be more independent. Um, so I'll spend a bit of time talking about that. And the third strategy is modifying the environment so people can cope without a memory. So they're the three main strategies. And then I talk a bit about the future. And I say things about improving technology, about providing rehabilitation where there are no resources, um, and no funds, and we have to think of creative ways to do that. So they're the main messages, I think, of the past, present, and future of memory rehabilitation. Excellent. And could you discuss some of your most interesting current projects, things that you're most excited about? Well, um, I actually retired nine years ago. But I'm still... very busy for a woman I know, who's retired. I know, I'm really <laughs> retired, but um, I don't get a regular salary anymore. Uh, but I um, do two days a week clinical work, one day at the Oliver Sangwell Centre and another day at the uh, a rehab centre for very severely impaired people in Kent, which is in the south of uh, England. Um, so down in Kent, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work with people with disorders of consciousness um, ways of um, assessing them, managing them, um, and I'm supervising a PhD at the moment of somebody doing five different studies with people with disorders of consciousness. At the Oliver Zangwill Centre, a lot of the work is focused now on, on writing things, um, advising people like our visiting scholars, but um, Jill and I are both active in, we've got a, a important new book coming out next year uh, that we've co-edited with two other people one from Australia and one from the Netherlands uh, it's called Neuropsychological Rehabilitation the International Handbook it's a real state-of-the-art very comprehensive book on neuro rehab 43 chapters 18 different countries represented 
So not only are the editors international from four different countries, but the contributors too. So we're very pleased about that. And our other book that's just been published is the Brain Injury Rehabilitation Workbook, uh, where we're talking about our approach to rehab and each chapter um, ends up with some exercises or suggestions for people working in brain injury rehab to do themselves with their patients. Excellent. Good luck with those books. Um, Dr. Weingartner, could you talk a little bit about your work with um, Dr. Wilson, Some maybe some highlights over the years, or you could discuss a little more of those books that are coming out. Sure. So Dr. Wilson founded our program 20 years ago. And just last month, we actually celebrated with a conference in London called Innovations in Clinical Practice. And a number of us presented on some of the recent work that we've been doing. So a lot of it it was based on our formulation of our clients, the consequences of their brain injuries on their sense of identity. So looking at who that person was prior to the injury who they are afterwards, and the sense of discrepancy and the threat that that brings, and how we can go about helping people reduce that sense of threat, teach them strategies for managing the problems that they've got, and applying those in real-life situations. So one of the examples that we talked about um, that I think might be interesting to, to, to think about here is support worker training. So again, as, as Barbara said, we have a lot of people who haven't got funds for things and who are going to need ongoing rehabilitation, ongoing support, not just a limited amount of intervention. So we had a man with severe memory impairment after encephalitis, sorry, encephalitis in the, the U.S., who did well with a lot of structure and was a very active man before his, his illness. When he went back home after our program, things fell apart a bit and we needed to find a way to generalize his gains. So we identified three students at a local college, a university nearby, who were really interested in helping him in return for the clinical experience and supervision that they would get from our center. So we developed a training day for them. We had them come down to our center and spend the day with us. We talked. We taught them about brain injury. We taught them about the patient that was going to be their, their client. We taught them the strategies that we'd been using with him. And we also taught them how to use the strategies that we'd identified with him for the future so that they would then become the, the trainers and the strategy implementers for him and with him. And we developed a support worker training manual to help them follow the, the principles that we talked about. And also, we assumed that these students would graduate eventually and go on, and we would need new students. So we taught the man and his wife to be employers and how to recruit and how to evaluate potential candidates. And then they would have the manual going forward. So it would be a system that could be applied for him going forward. So it uses a lot of neuropsych rehab principles. Um, but in a way that could be sustainable for him going forward. Mm -hmm. That sounds very applicable to a lot of the work that we do here at Kessler. I, I asked a young research scientist here what she would like to ask you, and here's her question. How do you take theories on memory rehabilitation, such as how to improve coding, and create strategies that actually work for a variety of patient populations? Would you like to take that first, Dr. Wilson? 
certainly a lot of the um, you know the working memory model for example that appeared in 1974 uh, Badley and Hitch's model I think that's um, generated um, certainly a lot of understanding about how memory works it's uh, not just memory but executive functioning because the central executive is part of that model um, they've given us lots of uh, ways to understand the, the pattern of deficits that we see, new assessment procedures have come out of it. Uh, things like um, space retrieval is built on the fact that these people have a normal immediate memory, but we can um, uh, extend that through strategies such as space retrieval. So that's just one area. Another one is um, the errorless learning work that uh, started off in the 70s with um, Terrace and his pigeons and behavioural psychology. And the other theoretical strand is cognitive psychology and its understanding of implicit memory. Um, they've both contributed to errorless learning, which is now such an important part of memory rehabilitation. I'll be touching on this tomorrow. Um, uh, they're just two examples of how theories have led to it. And, and in Jill's field of executive functioning, there's uh, other models such as Don Stas's model. Do you want to say anything about that, Jill? Sure. So in our program, we do a lot of psychoeducation for our clients so that they understand better the nature of the brain injury and the consequences for their daily lives. And in the executive functioning part of the program, we've used Don Stas's model of frontal lobe functioning in which he identifies four strands or domains of um, executive functions that are associated with neuroanatomical pathways. And we've put those four strands into sort of everyday language. So the first has to do with initiating and generating activity. So a lot of our clients have difficulty with um, initiating, maintaining the momentum, keeping going with things. The second is executive cognition, which has to do with planning, organizing, monitoring, structuring, those kinds of things. The third has to do with emotion and behavior regulations, how we manage emotions that are stronger than they used to be and harder to control. And the last has to do with awareness of the changes that we've experienced and our impact on other people. So we've taken each of those four domains and put them into everyday language and experience and then each of those generates also some particular strategies that can be used to help uh, improve functioning in those areas. So I'd like to ask you how, how familiar are you with our research here at Kessler Foundation and what are your impressions, if you have any, that you'd like to offer? Well, I know, I've known of John DeLuca's work for a long time, uh, his work on MS, his work on fatigue, it's, it's very well known for both those areas. Um, other than that, I only really know what I've learned about today. Uh, I mean, John certainly has a good international reputation, so I'm impressed with him and his work. Uh, but just today, we've, I think there's a lot more going on than, than either of us had realised here. I think it's really impressive that there is a clinical institution next door to the research institution so that the research can be conducted with actual patients and their real-life issues in, in such a systematic way. So they, they interact really nicely. I think it's one of the special things about yeah. Kessler Foundation. I mean, we, we have been impressed. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a much bigger and 
doing far more work than, than yeah. we'd realised before we came here today. Far more posh than our our English <laughs> hospital too, we have to say. It is much posher than our, the, the ways we work. And, um, you know, we, everything's on such a large scale too. When we were looking around the hospital this morning, those gyms, we have four different gyms, all of them huge. And I've never seen gyms as large as that. And then we were told, oh, this is a smaller gym. And it was still <laughs> enormous. <laughs> I think that sort of thing is helpful, right? To have the big gym and multiple gyms. and Well, it is in one way, but in another way, it's difficult for the patients, I think, because it's noisier and more distracting and they can't find their way around so easily. Maybe. I think our, our favorite feature about the gym was the, the therapy, therapy dog, dog. <laughs> slumbering gently on a pillow on one of the, the tables. Yes. <laughs> and tell us about your work with therapy dogs. Well, I came over from the U.S. about seven years ago, and I brought my dog, Lamb Chop, and he became the therapy dog at the Oliver Zangwill Center and a very integral part of the program. So it, because Dr. Wilson always insists on studying everything that we do, we decided to do a little research project. So we sent a survey out to 40 of our clients who had worked with Lamb Chop or been present in, when he was there. And we asked them if he helped their mood, if he helped their anxiety, if he had an overall beneficial effect on them, and if they thought that a therapy dog should be part of a, a brain injury program. And all but two wrote back and said, absolutely, we loved having the therapy dog, they should be part of a program. And the two who didn't were a bit um, persnickety anyway, and we weren't too surprised <laughs> about those two. So, the, But the best part were some of the qualitative um, the quotes that we got. So people said things like, um, when I feel sad, I go over and talk to Lamb Chop in the corner. Mm -hmm. Or Lamb Chop really helps my memory because I sign up in the morning for the job of taking him for a walk and I know I have to remember to do that. Um, and Barbara's best quote was, her quote is, Lamb Chop is the most popular member of staff. <laughs> <laughs> so we have that published in a journal called Neuropsychotherapy, I think. Mm -hmm. Probably the only one who gives kisses freely. <laughs> and then, <laughs> definitely in England, that's true. <laughs> Lamb Chop sadly died at a, a quite an advanced age, and we now have another one, Bertie, who belongs mm. to one of the assistant psychologists. He's a cocker spaniel, and um, he's quite different from Lamb Chop. He's much more exuberant. Mm -hmm. And he yes. speaks or sings when you arrive in the morning. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> his tail goes a mile a minute. He's very excited. And listeners can see his photo on your webpage, right, along with the yes. rest of the staff. Under Bertie Pamet. That's his name. Okay. <laughs> well, take, let's take a step back here. I want to get a little more, talk a little more about your um, background, Dr. Wilson. Mm -hmm. So I read that you didn't attend university until age 30. You were already married and had children. I thought that was very interesting. Mm -hmm. There's something, was there something about that stage in your life that created an interest in the field of neuropsychology, or did something else draw you in the field? No, it was, well, a, a mixture of things. I married a teacher. I was quite young. We had three children, three under three. We were hippies, 1960s hippies. Um, but my husband, being a teacher, always thought I should get more education. And I, while the children were young, I went to evening classes regularly. I did one in drama, one in Russian, uh, woodwork. And then we moved to Birmingham. Birmingham, Britain, not Birmingham, Alabama. And my husband was doing a, a, a special education course. 
And I phoned up Birmingham Tech the day we arrived and said, is there such a thing as A-level psychology? And she said, it's funny you should ask that because the very first um, trial one in the country is starting up this week in three places, one of which was Birmingham. She said, it's two evenings a week for nine months, you come along. So I went along, had a wonderful teacher, fell in love with the subject and some people were applying for university, which I never even thought of, really. And my husband was saying, you go, you go, you apply. So I applied to university, got offered three places, but he, we were moving to Reading, which is west to the west of London. So I accepted the one at Reading University, went there, got a first-class honours, then got on um, a clinical training course, and uh, clinical psychology so I'm a clinical psychologist first and then specialised in neuro afterwards and my career just took off from there and the youngest child, Matthew who now lives in Chile, all my children in their 50s now uh, and I'm a great grandmother by the way that's important to me (laughs) it's true and she's 11 months old and wonderful (laughs) anyway um, my career just took off and uh, Matthew, the youngest, was um, had just started school when I, when we moved to Birmingham, and I took the A level. That's what, what would be the equivalent in America to an A level. Oh, it's a sort of it. it's the last exams you take when you're 18 years old before you leave school. Doing really okay. really well in high school. Mm-hmm. But you mm-hmm. see, I I'd done A levels at school, but not in psychology because it didn't exist then. And so I got into it and. I never looked back really and my husband always supported me, always wanted me to do well and his job enabled him to look after the children at half term and so on. And That's school break. Mm-hmm. School break, mm-hmm. mid-term break. Is that, yeah, mm-hmm. Anyway, um, we've been married 54 years and he still supports me. Oh, <laughs> sweet. What a wonderful story and inspiring. It's never too late. It shows. No, I was a mature student. We called them mature students. Uh And I think there's big advantages. Mm -hmm. A, you know how to work. But more than that, when you're 18 and go, you're looking for boyfriends. Well, I was already married. You can't find a place to live. Well, we already had a house to live in. Um, (laughs) I was more grounded somehow. And for Mm -hmm. me, it was the right time to do all those things. And what do you think drew you into that field? There was obviously some, you know, circumstances and a little bit of fate involved, but why do you think you're interested? Well, why do you think you asked about the psychology class? And I was always interested in what would, what would later be called abnormal psychology, you know, people with problems, mental health problems or neurological problems. That had always interested me. Um, and um, when I went into psychology... I like I like the mixture of science and art. I think mm-hmm. it's a, it is a scientific subject, but it's also you know you've got to be creative and have flair and imagination. I like that. And then um, when I finished that degree, I wanted I knew I wanted to do clinical work. And in Britain, before you get on a clinical psychology course, you have to do some relevant experience, and normally that's done after your first degree and before you go on your clinical training but I was already 33 years old by then with three kids so I decided to get my experience while I was doing my first degree so I worked in what was then called a subnormality hospital 
now a hospital for people with severe learning difficulties and most of them don't exist anymore but they, this was a big one in Reading and I used to work from 8 in the evening to 8 in the morning um, in the most awful conditions sometimes you know I'd be having 54 mentally handicapped adults with epilepsy and smearing feces on the walls <laughs> I survived that so, so I could get the experience done and then and then sometimes I'd go straight from 8 o'clock in the morning at the hospital to my university classes. Mm. It was difficult but I it worked and then I got on a course at the Institute of Psychiatry in London to do my clinical training and that's probably the most prestigious place in the UK to do your clinical psychology training. And while I was there, I got very interested in neuropsychology. We had a very good teacher. I did a placement with him, an internship with him. Um, he actually drank too much and got the sack, but he was also oh, yeah. a very good teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so, and fired my enthusiasm. Then when I qualified, there were no jobs in neuro, so I went to work in what was called mental handicap then, or at that time it was called mental retardation in the USA. Neither of those terms are acceptable today, but they were then. And I worked with three wonderful psychologists and learned a lot coming from that field. You know, it was, if this kid doesn't learn, it's our fault as psychologists or teachers or therapists. It's up to us to find a way. And neuropsychology at that time wasn't like that. It was the patient's fault. This man doesn't learn because he's got frontal lobe damage or this woman doesn't learn because she's got hippocampal damage. And I thought that was wrong. It should be like a mental handicap where it's up to us to find a solution. But I always wanted to get into neuro. And then a job came up in neuro rehabilitation in Oxford, a place called Rivermead Rehabilitation Centre. And I applied for the job and got it. And my very first day there... I said to myself, Barbara, you've landed on your feet. You will be in this field for the rest of your career. And I was right. So that's my story. That's great. <laughs> what a great story. Um, I read that you'd like to change the misconceptions among some academic neuropsychologists as to the definition of rehabilitation. Um, you say that we also need to help people return to work or to school, right? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, well... I think rehabilitation is it's well it's not the same as recovery by getting if recovery we mean getting back to what people were like before their injury or illness it's not the same as treatment because treatment's something we do to people or give to people it's this two-way interactive process it's a partnership so I feel that about rehab and I, some of the academics not all of them of course but some they say they're talking about rehab, and they're not talking about rehab. They're talking about a little bit of treatment that might be applicable to rehab, but it's not my understanding of rehab. And I think what rehab's about is um, helping people to get the, um, the best um, physical, cognitive, emotional, social, uh, to get to those things to the best of their ability, and to help them return to their own most appropriate environments, to get back to work where that's possible. It's not always possible, of course, but we've got to then find alternatives to work. And I do get annoyed with people that say, oh, we're doing rehab, when they're focusing on one tiny treatment. And rehab's much broader than that. Mm. And I'm not saying what they're doing is not important. It is important, but it's a bit, a bit of the puzzle. It's not, to me, it doesn't reflect what rehab should be about. 
Yeah, we, Kessler, we have a whole arm that's devoted to helping people get back to work. Yes. Well, I think that's where in Britain we could do more. You know, we don't have vocational counsellors, for example. Our occupational therapists do most of that. And some of them do it extremely well. And it's it's a big part of holistic rehab. But I think we could improve those services with, you know, I think it's Mm -hmm. one of the areas we, you know, we're pretty good often at the cognitive, emotional, psychosocial side. But I would like to see more effort put into the vocational side. Mm-hmm. It's very important. Um, you certainly are busy for someone who's officially retired, as we already mentioned. You still present research? Do you still see patients? Yes, I do. Patients. Not so much at the Oliver's Angle Centre because uh-huh. um, there it's more an advisory role. I talk to the visiting scholars quite often. We get mm-hmm. them from all over the world. I, I do lots of writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you spend quite a bit of time traveling also, giving yeah. lectures and workshops. What sort of main message do you hope listeners and participants take away from their time with you? Yeah. But, but to, just to go back to the clinical patients, I do see sure. patients mm-hmm. a lot at the other center. Mm-hmm. About a third of my work now is with pa- people with disorders of consciousness. And I see people down there with very unusual syndromes that I've never heard of before or come across before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do see patients, but not so much at the Zangwill Centre. Um, the messages I'd like to, to get across is, you know, rehabilitation is, um, first of all, it, it doesn't really end. And there's not just one style. It should be applicable to people with disorders of consciousness right through to people that we see at the Oliver Zangwill Centre who have a chance of getting back to work or to a more independent life. Um, So I'd like, you know, I think the real message is to the the funders of rehabilitation, the purchasers of healthcare services. They don't recognise how important rehab is. And we put all this effort into saving people's lives early on um, and then they're often abandoned when there's so much we can do there's always something you can do to improve things and make life a bit better and reduce some of the problems and improve the quality of life for the patients and the families um, so there's some of the messages I'd like to get across and another message is I want Jill to stay in the United Kingdom and not be tempted back to the USA Ooh, is, that, is there a chance of that happening? <laughs> there is a chance <laughs> well, the reason I'm here in the, in the US is that I've been um, consulting on a feasibility study to bring neuropsychological rehabilitation to a hospital system in Cleveland. Uh-huh. So. And you're from Cleveland? Or? I lived I lived there for many years, mm-hmm. not yes. from there originally, but lived there for a long time. What do you do to relax? Do you have any favorite any passions or favorite pursuits? We did hear that you're a Bob Dylan fan. Yeah, where did you find out all this about me? You know a lot more about research, me. Research, research. <laughs> yes, Bob Dylan. Um, I'm a, we're big Bob Dylan fans, or the whole family. Bob Dylan was born the same year of me, as me, a few months earlier, but 1941, okay. same year. He cut his first LP the year I married. So um, he's been a big part of our lives. Mm. There's a joke, we, my husband and I sometimes say it's a menage à toi. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you need to edit that out. <laughs> But I really, you know, I'm so pleased that he got the Nobel Prize for Literature. Mm. I thought it was wonderful because the words of his songs are so important. But then he didn't go, and I think that was wrong. 
Yeah. It's such a big, prestigious thing to get. Yeah. The Nobel Prize for Literature. He really should have gone. So I'm a bit disappointed with him there. Mm -hmm. yes. But what do I do to relax? Well, I'm, I'm close to my family. I've got grandchildren in Chile, grandchildren in England, a great-grandchild in England. Uh, I see them. We're quite a close family. Um, I, um, I love travel both for work and for pleasure. I'm, I sometimes say I'm a serious traveller. been to places that nobody else has been to. Barbara's been to over 100 countries now. Ooh. Wow. I've been to, for example, Gabon. Mm -hmm. French people sometimes go to Gabon. Most Brits don't. Jill and I travel to unusual countries. We've been to Iran recently, to Lebanon, um, Turkey, um, so, you know, I had trouble at immigration yesterday getting into the country because I've been to Iran. Mm, yeah, they thought I was suspicious. And I'm a very straight, you know, normal, good person. <laughs> anyway, and the other thing is um, my husband and I are into good restaurants. Mm. We like Michelin star restaurants. Okay. We go to Spain frequently. We love the Spanish cuisine. And there's lots of Michelin star restaurants there that we go to frequently so we're foodies in a way are you going to make it into new york into the city um only, i am for lunch tomorrow awesome. uh, not tomorrow wednesday uh, guildford press they've published two of my books oh. and they're taking me out to lunch before i go home on wednesday evening oh. i better not be. sure about <laughs> that but they'll i know they'll choose a good one <laughs> first japanese meal i ever had was in new york many many years ago with Seymour Weingartner, the boss of Guildford Press. Mm. And I was quite green and young at the time, and he took me to this Japanese restaurant and he forced me to use chopsticks, which I'd wow. never used before. And now, of course, mm -hmm. I can use chopsticks anywhere, and I'm an expert, but I always thank Seymour Weingartner <laughs> for teaching me how to use chopsticks. <laughs> All right, I have one more question. Um, I read that you're writing your memoirs. Uh, how is that project going, and why is oh, that important to you? Um, it started, I was doing a summer school in Greece, and I had a lot of spare time during the day, so I started my memoirs. But uh, other writing commitments took over, so I've put those on hold. I'm not sure if I'll ever refer to those. I mean, one of the reasons, I think it's, I was, I was say. I'm a Brixton street kid, a South London street kid. But I was quite a neglected child um, with benign neglect. Nobody was ever cruel to me, but I was on my own a lot from a young age and I made good through education. And most of the people in my field have come from more privileged backgrounds, so partly I wanted that. Um, at the time, I think I just didn't have anything more serious to write, so I thought I'd start writing on that, but that's been abandoned some time ago future you have time right maybe get back day. to it <laughs> is there anything that you'd like to tell us anything that you'd like to add as we wind up here well I mean I always like coming to the states I always get this feeling of uh, you know pe people are very positive it's like gee I loved your talk and they think you can do anything but I worry about it too I worry about the future now certain things have happened and when I started coming in, 19, in the 1980s there were something like 600 specialist brain injury rehab centres and that's changed and I think 
you know, Britain, Australia and the Netherlands are doing better rehab on the whole mm. than here. And that's changed and, and that's sad. And why do you think that is? Managed care, things oh, like yeah. that. I would agree. That's why I live in England and not mm. in the US. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it is about the health insurance coverage. Mm. It's so sad to hear, isn't it? Yeah. Oh. So I have, like most people, you know, you have mixed feelings about the States. Mm -hmm. There's some very positive things. My best friend in the world is American. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jill. <laughs> and what about you, Dr. Weingarten? Do you have any concluding thoughts? I would really agree with the things that Barbara has said, and I would really love to see a bigger focus on neuropsychological rehabilitation rather than just rehabilitation or just cognitive rehabilitation. And I would love to see a bigger look at integrating every aspect of human experience into our approach to rehabilitation. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today, Dr. Wilson and Dr. Weingartner, and we're very much looking forward to hearing your lecture tomorrow on the past, present, and future of memory rehabilitation. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.